Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, A Song of Ice and Fire, Episode 81, A Storm of Swords, Jamie 2. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me from the internet as Liza Narber on Twitter, Tumblr, or LizaNarberGold.com. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit on the Maester Monthly Podcast, maybe as Arithmetric over on Twitter. Or as an abandoner. An abandoner. The abandoner of podcasts. Orphaned. Uh, Motherless. Damned. (laughs) That's you. Eliana, you're leaving us for a couple weeks. Yes, it's just a brief amount of time. To be honest, it's a fortnight. Distraught about it, more or less. It's a fortnight. A fortnight. Yeah, Yeah, you're going to be out of office, out of office for a couple weeks. But we have one more Jamie episode until you are out of office. That's going to come out next week. That's Jamie three. Indeed, and I'm excited for this one. A first of all, it's the sexiest Jamie chapter. It is. There's a a sword fight. I'm also excited because. Someone that I greatly admire is coming onto the podcast, and fangirl Jean is joining us next week for Jamie Three. Yes, you might know her from her writing. You might know her from her Twitter account, where she posts a lot of really great thoughts and a lot of really awesome Twitter threads that break down a lot of interesting themes on on a bunch of different series. I've loved her takes on the Song of Ice and Fire. And I think she always comes at it from a really interesting angle. And so I was really excited that she said yes to being our guest for Jamie 3. Yeah, and I am I definitely really like her Jamie and Brienne takes. So having her on for this chapter is absolutely perfect. I uh, couldn't have picked a better person. She has a lot of uh, fun tweets of like Jamie and Brienne AU's like alternate universe um, scenarios. Yeah, we'll have to pick a couple of our favorite ones next week. Yeah. Well, speaking of betrayal, our Patreon episode this month is going to be something a little different. <laughs> wow, you you really made it like that. You, that is a thing that you actually did just now. It's a thing that you're doing when you leave us for two weeks, Eliana, betraying us. <sighs> but I will be betraying you guys because I am cheating on Eliana for our Patreon episode. So many odes, they make you swear and swear. This is a month that we are going to be doing Philip Pullman's series, the His Dark Materials series, uh, but we are going to be doing an episode on The Secret Commonwealth, which is actually a book of dust. Now, some of you who are following both of these podcasts, uh, you might be sitting there going, wait a second, Eliana hasn't finished La Belle Sauvage. She pledged to Chloe that she would finish it by February 14th. (laughs) Well, if you're listening to this, it's likely February 14th released for the public uh very romantic so eliana will have read it by now but eliana will not be here to be on this patreon episode so we are going to have a different girl gone canon join us we're going to have Faye from the podcast her dark materials on to chat with us and she too pledged to chloe that she will finish the second book of dust the secret commonwealth uh by the time we record so <laughs> i'm excited about that yes I thought that was that was a really fun way for us to do this. I was like, yes, Chloe, this is gonna be great. I'm I have really enjoyed her dark materials. If you like, you know, the way that Chloe and I approach the series and our chemistry, I highly recommend you check out her dark materials. They're super fun. Yeah, they are kind of like 
alternate UK versions of us, right? Cultural exchange is what we're happening here. Ooh, I get it. I get it. I'm leaving and we're getting a foreign exchange, right? And since you will be gone, leaving us like the orphans that we are, uh, this episode will actually also be going live. We're going to share it for the public on March 6th to fill the gaps between the Jamie episodes, since we will have a week off from Jamie, which I know it's hard. I like doing these episodes, but I think a week off will be good for us to resonate on what we've learned. It will. Plus, there's going to be some serious sexual uh, energy in the next episode, so I think it's going to be good for us to just think about what we've done. Yeah, everyone can take a cold shower for two weeks. (laughs) Especially Jamie. Yes. And eventually, you know, eventually one day he's going to take a bath. It's going to be great. A lot of things are going to happen during that bath, but we're not there yet. Okay, something really exciting. We told you guys we had a lot to get to. So much. So much. This is almost it before we get to some awesome emails and, of course, our lightning round. But first, we're here to talk about a giveaway. That's right, a Girls Gone Canon giveaway. Thank you to a very generous benefactor who wants to remain anonymous. It's Illyria Mopatis. <laughs> we are giving away one weekend pass Thursday through Sunday to Ice and Fire Con in Mount Sterling, Ohio this year. Uh, The convention is April 23rd to April 26th. It is in a state park about 30 minutes outside of Columbus. With this one weekend pass, we will also be giving away some exclusive Girls Gone Cannon merchandise and an alcoholic or non-alcoholic beverage of your choosing from the both of us at the convention itself. This does not include lodging, transportation, or food fees. You guys got to front that part of the deal. But we are giving away a mini package. Yes, you're giving away a free golden ticket. And again... Gets you in the doors. Yes, again, thank you, Illyrio, for your generous involvement sponsoring our campaign. Are we Fagon? Unsure. Are we? I don't know. I I think I'm Roland Duckfield. Aw, you what? Does that make me Aegon? Anyways. Unsure. Eliana... How are they going to win this giveaway? Send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. All right, that's C-A-N-O-N. If your email doesn't go through, please let us know. We will help you out. As the subject line, write favorite POV and then put the name of your favorite POV, right? So your subject line should say F-A-V-O-R-I-T-E space POV. Maybe space, maybe a colon, maybe a dash, whatever punctuation, you know, makes you happy. I think I I just want to know, like, you know, it, it'll be interesting <laughs> to know what kind of person people are. How do they do this, right? Um, And then put your favorite POV there. Yeah, so mine would be favorite POV brand. Really? Or favorite POV Sansa. Really? Yes. And then tell yes. us, uh, also, importantly, not only... Do you make that your subject line? I, we would like for you to tell us why that's your favorite POV in the body of the email. Um, we would like for you to sign it uh, just so you know part of the terms of entry are that at some point, if you were to win the giveaway, we will need your first and last name because that's how you purchase a ticket. But otherwise, we are going to randomly select a winner. So don't worry about being too eloquent. All right, we are going to read these, but how 
well you write, how well you make your case for what is your favorite POV will not, in fact, impact your your chances of winning. The only thing that will impact your chances of winning are drinking, like, I don't know, Felix Felicis or <laughs> whatever other good luck charm or ritual that you end up performing. No glass candles, guys. No hacking whatever random number generator we end up landing upon. we are taking submissions until march 1st 2020 so we are gonna let you guys know the winner when eliana returns home to the podcast on friday 313 with jamie 4 march 13th friday the 13th will be an unlucky day for many except for one (laughs) it's gonna be me because i'm gonna be talking to you (laughs) yeah she's like fuck i gotta deal with her again she's coming back she's gonna be so happy to have me back that's not Let's not play. Well, that's it for big announcements. We can move on to some quick letters from some friends. We actually got an email from our friend Karen, who said that she's been following our podcast for a while, fell behind due to late stage PhD, and she's almost caught up and she's ready for Jamie. She knows she's late to the John party, but wanted to share this idea to this idea with us, which came to her during a recent reread. She noticed a strong parallel between John's beheading of Janos, Rob's beheading of Rickard Karstark, and Theon's beheading of Farlin at Winterfell. She goes on to talk about how the beheadings relate to them, like how many blows it takes to separate the head, and how for John, it's a little different. Uh, Karen? Dr. Karen? Dr. Karen? Dr. Karen says that for John's beheading of Janos Lynn, it only takes him really... One try, whereas as we see with Rob and Theon, it takes some multiple tries for Theon. His beheading uh, ends up quite quite the hack job. Uh, he struggles to get through Farland's Farland, and then for Rob, you know, he almost gets it all the way through for Rickard Karstark, but then needs one more blow. And for John, he just like you know slices right through Janoslin. Also, though, in 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 John's in the defense of both Rob and Theon. John had a Valyrian steel sword. I would like that. I thought I only realized that right now, but well, it's funny you think that because I was thinking about how, uh, and it's in this very chapter actually that we learn from Jamie. He felt that killing Ares was easy and quick, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Ares ran. He knew what was going to happen, and he ran. So a lot of people are always pissy, like, "Oh, he stabbed him in the back," but Ares knew. He knew. It wasn't like he came up unsuspecting on him. Like, Ares knew what was about to happen to him. Uh, but Jamie thinks of how easy and quick it was. And for John, I don't even know if it was exactly one. We just, it's ambiguous, right? John stalks off, it's over. And I think that does say a lot about his rule, especially about about the commandership being a little ambiguous for him, right? Not knowing, is he going to be a good ruler? Is he not going to be a good ruler? That penny in the air or that gold dragon in the air, so to speak, right? What kind of ruler will he be? And he dies for it. Mm -hmm. Um, But Rob didn't have that chance to come back. Theon got a chance to come back. John gets a chance to come back, likely. And Rob did not. But yeah, yeah, Karen, Dr. Karen... Um, <laughs> does also draw that explicit line of how, you know, it, how does this relate to Ned's legacy? And as you said, John, like Ned, dies for his decisions. I mean, so, so does Rob, right? They all, all pay consequences, and that's very much a running theme from John onto all of his sons, blood or not. John emulates Ned in a lot of ways, as we see, and 
that's, I think, part of what the books are talking about, that family can be more than... It's about the expansive definition of family as well as redefining, well, does family necessarily mean loyalty, right? Depending on how it is. And you see that in Jamie's chapters. And I think it would be worth noting, right? As you said, a lot of people act as though Jamie stabbed Ares in the back. But Jamie notes that for Ares, those purple eyes grew huge then. So did Jamie meet Ned's standards of if you are going to kill a man, you owe it to look him in the eyes. I would say so. Yeah. Turns out Ares's last words were not were not great. Probably. <laughs> I mean, we don't hear his last words here, but he had some last words and they were not great. We did get another message on Patreon, actually, from our friend and patron Pepper Nix, who wrote us reminding us about Jacob and Asau. Uh, as we talk about Jamie and Cersei some more. It's been a very long time. We last brought them up back in John 8 in A Game of Thrones. We talked about them. But our friend Taylor wrote to us way back when, if you guys can remember, all the way back to A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 12, The Kingbreaker, about our Eddard episodes telling us about how they thought Cersei and Jamie were very Jacob and Asau. So I thought that was a great catch of bringing it back up. Yeah, so Pepper talks a little bit about how we discussed Jamie clutching Cersei's foot in our Jamie intro, and in in the previous episode we had discussed how maybe this has to do with like the idea of an Achilles heel. But Pepper brings up that this is also perhaps a biblical reference uh, regarding the twins of Jacob and Esau, who were sons of Isaac, son of Abraham. It was all like the tribes, right, that that come from this and end up making up Israel, uh, especially from Jacob, who ends up inheriting the birthright and, and stealing the birthright from Esau by pretending to be him, slipping into that identity. And Pepper's like, this could be my four years of seminary, which, like, look at all these really awesome, educated people. I know, right? Like, seminary, damn. Doctors. Christ. Pepper said, when I think about that part, about the foot clutching of twins, which turns out is actually impossible... Uh, they got very Jacob and Nassau vibes and also sent us a link of ha- twins and like birth positions and what it means in the Bible. We'll include mm-hmm. that link. It's interesting. There's been lots of what, like Genesis talk in general lately in our His Dark Material cast. We talked about the Tower of Babel recently, and I feel like it all kind of comes around here. The Genesis stories are a lot more involved with creation myths, right? So it's funny that they absolutely positively fit here when they're in the Riverlands where everything's dying. Uh, Genesis has a little bit of incest talk, what with Noah's drunkenness and the grandson. Hall is also kind of this memory of the rebellion lost and mm. of the people that came together to shut down a tyrant's reign. Very much so Tower of Babel itself and uprising. Yeah, especially because what Hall was in some ways meant to be like a sort of spite. A Tower of Babel-esque kind of endeavor of, like, we are better than the gods and then got spoke by a dragon. I think that's a really interesting connection. I love that Pepper brought up this connection. I you know know the, the story of Jacob and Nassau, but I didn't know this about how they were born. And this idea of the twins and the stolen birthright, we had discussed that before. It seems as though Jamie was the one who's going to take the throne based on the 1993 letter. It ends up being Cersei, right? But in many ways, I mean... We don't know exactly how the books are going to go, but I don't I don't disbelieve the idea of Cersei taking the throne or who knows what. In in many ways she has done so through her children, right? 
So this idea of like Cersei and that stolen birthright kind of ends up as a sort of reversal, considering that Jacob was the younger brother born just a bit later. Something really interesting to be played on. And I think as we get Jamie to Harrenhal and back home to Cersei, I suppose we will talk some more about it. Another another thing to note, last week, of course, we addressed an email regarding different orders in Westeros, such as the Knights, the Knights Watch, the King's Guard, celibacy, and then we also talked a little bit about the Insullied, etc. Lo, Jacob Muir, whom we've discussed a few times on this cast, made this really great tweet thread that expanded on this idea, and Lo has actually written an essay on castration and masculinity and the performance of it by varies and the performance of gender by varies um on their tumblr so would recommend checking that out but uh this tweet thread had a really great discussion on masculinity uh disability sexuality and castration pointing out that the way that the story sort of like interlinks the two and the way that masculinity is linked to and then also pointing out castration right the the unsullied maybe are meant to be castrated to prevent like those romantic connections as well as uh sexual assault but that that doesn't actually preclude one from being an assailant though you know the unsullied are of course victims themselves a lot of complex things going out there but i i do think it's interesting especially as we get more into jamie's storyline and we'll talk about this later i'll link the tweet thread go check it out check out Lowe's essays Let's speed on ahead. We have a lightning round to conquer our second Jamie lightning round. Catelyn won. Catelyn finds herself imprisoned in her childhood home, and not just how we felt at age 13. <laughs> she visits with her dying father and gets news that Jamie has escaped, which complicates her plan. Arya won. Arya, Hot Pie, and Gendry are lost along the trident, and she dreams through the eyes of a wolf watching a pack tear apart four of the bloody mummers. <laughs> nice. Tyrion won. Recovering from the wounds he sustained during the Battle of the Blackwater, Tyrion decides to come off of his workers' comp to get back to business. He asks his father to name him heir to Dwayne Johnson. You can imagine the response. I meant Casterly Rock. No, I know. I knew exactly what you meant. You don't got you don't gotta explain it to me. Davos won. Washed up in Blackwater Bay, Davos has somehow survived. Solidor son rescues him from the waters. I was pretty excited when I first read that chapter. I was like, it's, it's Davos. Sansa won. Sansa's coerced into telling the truth about Joffrey to the Tyrells. He's a monster. An escape is on the horizon. John won. I don't even know who this character is. <laughs> John and Mance break common ground and John turns cloak. Daenerys won. Daenerys is persuaded to change course from Pentos to Astapor. Also, Jorah wants her to consider having a threesome with him. Or just to maybe give him heads. Wait, did I do this right? Shit. Three heads. This is, Three this heads. is what Jorah, in fact, wants. I mean, no, I'm not I'm wrong. I'm glad we don't have a Jorah POV, my god. Thank god. Bran won. Hunkered down in Tumbledown Tower. Bran learns to work his third eye at will. They make for the wall, hoping to find someone who can teach Bran more. Davos too. Stannis' power is broken after the Blackwater, and Davos plans to avenge his son's death by killing Melisandre. He's stopped by Axel Florent, who puts him in the dungeons. Fuck that guy. Let them, let them all do their thing over there in the Reach. But for now, here, 
in the Riverlands, the trio arrives at the inn of the Kneeling Man, where raw symbolism is contrasted by memories of Ares Targaryen. No smoke rises from the chimneys and there are no lights on. It's likely that the innkeeps are hiding, or maybe dead, Brienne says, but Jamie is afraid of neither type, to Brienne's annoyance. Seriously, they kind of just spend this whole time annoyed with each other. That's basically the book. That's the sexual tension. Yeah. There's this great contribution from our producer, Alisan the cat. I don't know. I don't know what, at what point Alisan came in to edit, but it says four five one 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 one. There's a lot of ones. Eight five seven four 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 four. A lot of fours also. So this is in the outline and therefore must be shared with the audience. It's like when you read a teleprompter and you stare at the news camera. I mean, we have to. Yes. I mean, the the <sighs> producer, this is what they want. And they, Allie funds the podcast. I have some arguments, <laughs> but instead of that. <gasps> Close, like, I fund Allie. Jamie. <laughs> uh, Jamie Lannister asks Brienne of Tarth if she would like to sleep in a bed for a night to investigate this inn and hide out. And she silently is like, yeah, actually, we probably have to. So she guides the skiff into the dock. And Jamie is made awkward by his chains. He lumbers after them. And they come to the end of the dock, marked by an iron post with a king on his knees painted into it. So he explains what the humor is behind this. It's the land where King, I almost said Lord, King Torin Stark knelt for surrendering the north to Aegon the Conqueror. He had gone south after the Field of Fire. He's like, yeah, we can do it. Now's the time to strike. And then the Field of Fire happened. He's like, I'm going to kneel. Yeah, he like is staring up at the dragons and he's like, mm, but, better not. He's like, but what if I didn't? Yeah. And everyone says it's wisdom, which it obviously is. I mean, there's no point fighting three grown dragons. Something interesting happens here with the chronology of the chapters, right? Uh, obviously, Brienne's whole mission is bringing the Stark girls back, and this is the land where Torrin Stark knelt. But Arya too, two chapters after this, Arya comes through this inn with her very own trio, her, Gendry, and Hot Pie. So you can liken these guys to Brienne, Jamie, and Cleos. Hot Pie even leaves right around the same time Cleos leaves them by dying. So it kind of works in a way. But these chapters kind of echo each other and chase each other throughout the book, right? The Brotherhood versus the Mummers. The Hall experience versus their Hall <laughs> experience. I don't think these echoes are going to stop in the Winds of Winter, necessarily. We've probably talked about it likely in our Game of Thrones episodes, I think, for season 8. But with Brienne looking for Sansa in Feast Onward, Arya seems to be trailing a step ahead or behind her. And I think in The Winds of Winter, Brienne is definitely going to end up seeing Arya before she sees Sansa in these books, in my opinion. We have characters, you know, like Sam, who run into Arya and are like, this was okay. And then goes off on his way, none the wiser about having met Arya Stark of Winterfell. The show, you know, had the whole Jamie decides he is still obsessed and in love in this toxic thing with his sister and rides off. And I wonder if it could even be this opposite reaction, like maybe... Brienne going to kill Stannis instead of saving Sansa in season five of The Bad Show. It's when I when I refer to it as The Bad Show, you know, I'm talking about like season five through seven. <laughs> Four through seven, if you want to get technical. Take two through seven. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> season one and season eight. Um, yeah, so uh, in, in the end, though, you know, Brienne... Brienne ditches saving Sansa and she goes and kills Stannis. And I could almost see that happening in the Riverlands instead with a role reversal where 
instead of saving Arya, Arya has to kill Lady Stoneheart, which is, we've obviously chatted, is one of my favorite theories. But I could see something where Brienne chooses Jaime over doing her actual duty, and she basically loses her honor with that move. Ironically, maybe that's the night she gets knighted. Yeah. With both of his swords. We don't wow. know. Wow. Um, what? Or maybe maybe doing so is also the honorable choice, right? Like, as we're seeing right now in Brienne's storyline, she's being forced into a position that there is little honor in either choice. Mm-hmm. Same as what Jamie went through as he was, like, going through his knighthood before he was like, hmm, fuck it. Which we, yeah. we will discuss that fuck it moment if we get a glimpse of it in this chapter. But for now... Jamie is seeing horses in stables. He decides, you know what, let's break into the inn. He decides that one horse is all he needs from the to escape from the wench, as he still thinks of her, and shoves his shoulder into the door, but then is met with a crossbow-armed 15-year-old boy who asks, Lion, Fisher, Wolf, honor yeah, the horse. Brienne and Cleo's kind of crowd in around him, and he makes a big joke per usual very jamie smarmy he's like well we were hoping for bird because we're hungry and they spar words a little bit and cleos and brienne both are like whoa 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 let me calm the situation down we're gonna pay for everything here's real coin the kid is very suspicious because jamie is in chains and jamie's like i killed some crossbow men and he's like give me some ale the kid asks them to disarm themselves and maybe they can talk noting their river run sale a man steps through the cellar door with a cleaver in hand, safe, saying he has fresh enough horse meat for three people available with coin. So we later learn that this guy has three total horses left, not just this one that they saw in the stables, but it's very noteworthy that they had four, right? Like he has enough meat for three people, and the meat that he has is good, but not fresh, which means it's it's been being lived off of for a hot second. So... Well, the trio takes those horses. That's it. That guy has nothing. They ate his last horse. They took the rest of the horses. Hmm. Damn. I mean, I think that's why Brienne is in many ways very generous. We'll get to that. Jamie tries to flatter the innkeep for now, though, saying that the innkeep is honest, since most would actually lie about the freshness of the food. And the guy's like, I'm not an innkeep. Uh, I buried the last ones when I found them here, dead at the inn. Uh, and they're like, I don't know who killed them. Maybe wolves or lions. He's like, what's the difference? Yeah, it's so apparent. Just like a head. Like they said, lions, fish, or wolf. Uh, they don't see gold or crimson or gray and white. Where any soldiers come or where any people involved in the war come, they see blood. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because I, I always kind of attribute that to the Brienne chapters, right? It's something that I think that the Brienne chapters are very known for. Uh, the the lens into the destruction of the war on the Riverlands. But it, it really very much starts... It starts in Clash, right? But it's apparent here in these Jamie chapters as well. Yeah, the Jamie and Arya chapters are like hand in hand. Yeah, here. and therefore I mean part of Brienne's story from... I, I do think it's also, you know, as you're talking about this argument of... They just see death and blood. You get this thing coming forward in Jamie's POV. It's a sort of like twisted way of looking at that idea of all sides are the same. And I think kind of a perversion, right? On the message of 
the POV that we get a kind of perversion, right, on the message that we get through John's POVs, as John discovers that, wait, all the other people that we thought were our enemies, they're all people and human too. Jamie's POV kind of presents a more, I think, a different way of looking at that. He's jaded and older, so it matches his perspective on life. It's that, yeah, all the people are human, and all of them suck. (laughs) That's Jamie Lannister's view right now. And, And along with that, we have like these arguments for that murky morality in earlier books already, of course. But it really starts to, I think, very much cement itself as a big theme in this book like it, it it was there before right but it's really hammered home in the jamie povs and i think jamie's povs nail it like in the previous chapter jamie's already starting to tell brienne like well it was stark men right who hung those who hanged those women and the story's starting to prime us to accept that wait maybe that murky and gray morality that you're seeing between lions and wolves that one side can also do bad Maybe the flip side is true of Jamie's own character or, or that deepening of it. Yeah, that there can be both the duality of it. The Nada Innkeep is starting to get frustrated with all of their questions. And he's like, well, I'm not going to serve or talk unless there's more money. So Brienne tosses him a coin and he tells the boy to get onions for the meal. Cleos asks if the boy is his son. And the man's like, nah, we took him in. The lions killed one of our own sons. The other son died in the flux. This boy lost his mom to the Mummers, and they became a very small ragtag family together, protecting each other and this land they stumbled upon. And this is it. This is what the Riverlands has become. Protect the land that you stumble upon. Absolutely. So many people losing family members, trying to make new ones. The innkeep then directs everyone to sit, and Jamie does so, annoyed by his own clinking chains, and then he thinks about how he wants to strangle Brienne with the chains to see how she likes them. And I just imagine, like, Jamie trying to, like, you know, roleplay as Princess Leia, Brianna's job of the hut. That That's Jamie's fantasy right now. Interesting that he's thinking about strangling Brienne with chains when, you know, it's it runs in the family. Oh, that you're feeling. right. And there's Very the whole idea of the gold hands around Shay's neck. Yeah. And possibly the Valonqar. I mean, so something that I've been thinking about also is, like, this is not right, you know, like the timing of this and the Blackwater, Jamie and Chains, you know. Be- oh, the chain from the Blackwater. The chain from the Blackwater ending up being quite the boon, right, for House Lannister in here for Jamie's like, I hate this. <laughs> the Not an Innkeep, who listens to the Not a Podcast, grills up the steaks with onions and bacon grease, and they drink ale and cider while he asks them for news of River Run. Cleos answers and tells them River Run has held out but Hoster is failing amidst all the battles. They tell the man they're heading to King's Landing and he calls them three fools. Last I heard, King Stannis was outside the city walls. They say he has a hundred thousand men and a magic sword. Jamie's hands wrapped around the chain that bound his wrists, and he twisted it taut, wishing for the strength to snap it in two. Then I'd show Stannis where to sheath his magic sword, he thinks internally. Ah. That, that, that wasn't clear from my narration, but... I'd stay well clear of that king's road if I were you, the man went on. It's worse than bad, I hear. Wolves and lions both and bands of broken men preying on anyone they can catch. He said the thing. Who does Arya come across, though, in the next handful of chapters? Some A band of broken men, maybe? 
bands of broken men, and then who does she get preyed on? By a broken man. The hound. Yup. Okay. These chapters just high five themselves, really. (laughs) They chef kiss and then they high five themselves afterwards. Okay. Cleos claims no men would ever prey on them, for they're armed. But the cook eye rolls and he's like, it's one man, a woman, and a prisoner. Not really that armed. And of course, Brienne looks at him like, oh, I will murder you. Because she's a better swordsman than Cleos, and obviously she can give Jamie a run for his money, too. I I just find it interesting here that Jamie thinks that Brienne hates being reminded she's a woman. And of course, this is, might be before George ever knew that he's going to give Brienne a POV. He might not have had that plan, you know, with his, like, gardener way of looking at things. There's a part of me that kind of wonders if Jamie is projecting what he knows of Cersei onto Brienne. Because as we know, Cersei envies manhood, right? She envies, like, the privilege that comes with it. Uh, and But from what I remember, it, it doesn't seem in Brienne's POVs that she necessarily hates being a woman or the sheer to be a man i think there there's definitely a lens that we can use to look at brienne through i don't know being non-binary or genderqueer um i don't know that we're going to jump into that discussion today in depth but she does seem to wish more that like she could be accepted for who she is like that she could be this kind of perform this maybe kind of womanhood or whoever she is rather or conversely, of course, a feeling that I'm sure many people have felt, w- wishing that she could conform better to society and those norms. Unfortunately, she realizes that she can't, right? There's nothing she can do. Her body is the way that it is. And she lives her life instead, instead of just trying to pursue those norms, just trying to be the most righteous way that she knows how to be. And I think as their journeys progress at first, this is this is something that Jamie find super annoying about Brienne because he was in, unable to live up to that, but it's something that he then grows to admire. I agree with you. I don't think Brienne hates being a woman. She hates that her gender limits her for the things she's interested in. Um, it's, I mean, the things that she loves to do, right? Like swords and fighting. It's never been her body that's limited her from doing that. It's been society looking at her role and what she's supposed to do that limits that. And I think that's what she hates. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that she hates being a woman because there's nothing wrong with it for her. She can do everything she wants to do. It's that society won't let her do it. Yeah. And she can't perform womanhood in the way that the way that being a lady asks her to do it, you know? Yeah. For people like Sansa or Catelyn, it comes not effortlessly, but I mean, politics yeah. is something that they're very apt to, right? They they have an aptitude for it, and it's not something that comes easy for Brienne. It's where characters like Arya really uh, shine next to Brienne when you think about their characters yeah. together. It's why when I said earlier that trio of Gendry and Hot Pie and Arya really does work against this trio, mm. because they're very similar parallels. It's very apparent that Jamie definitely is projecting on Brienne with how he regards her looks, how he's always putting her in Cersei's dresses, Mm -hmm. and how later he's even astonished by how pretty her eyes were. Like, yes, you big dumb idiot, you've been busy trying to make her Cersei in your brain because you don't know how to relate to humans. Yeah. He he sees a lot of things through the lens of Cersei, especially for these first few chapters. And, And even later, right? Then it becomes like the opposite side of love is hate. 
But actually not yeah. that. It's not that. The opposite of love is indifference. Whatever. Regardless. Brienne tells the cook that she needs to take the trident to the sea. She's going to go get a mountain maiden pool. And then maybe, I don't know, come through Duskendale and Rosby. The cook is doubtful that they're going to reach maiden pool. They're like, the channel's blocked up. It's burned. All the boats are staying 30 miles up. And there are outlaws preying on anyone that comes by. Also, the lightning lord has been seen there as well. <gasps> Guess. Beric Dondarrion. Cleos demands to know who this lightning lord is. God, I hate Wait, you, Wait, do you not, does he not know? Like, he really doesn't get do you, it. Like, Cleos is like, the joke went over his head. Not even that, it's like, everyone knows his fucking sigil. Anyways, whatever. <laughs> the man tells him, Lord Beric Dondarrion. He strikes so suddenly, like lightning from a clear sky, and it's said he can't die. Jamie darkly thinks, they all die if you shove a sword through them. But funnily enough, that still hasn't killed Beric. Jamie doesn't know that. Yeah, and I didn't think about it. You start getting all that foreshadowing here, right? Because then they're like, oh, Thoris of Mir still rides with him? And it's said that he has strange powers? And Jamie is totally, like, taking a leaf out of Maester Lewin's book for all this. And he's like, well, the only power Thoros of Mir has is the power of his fucking liver, because he can match Robert Baratheon forever drink to drink. And, it is a power. Uh, it is power. And the fact that, like, power move, Thoros told the king he became a red priestess to cover his wine stains with the robes. It's not a bad idea that... Should I be wearing more red? Anyways. Maybe black. I do wear black a lot of the, black. The cure. Well, that's what I do, too, and I do drink a lot of red wine, so. Anyway. <laughs> uh, then Jamie thinks that, oh, yeah, when he heard that Joe Robert laughed so hard he'd spit ale all over Cersei's silken mantle. Of course, it's all anchored back into Cersei mm -hmm. and her dress. Jamie mentions to the group that the trident may not be a good plan, and the cook agrees, saying that the ruby ford would give them pause enough. Last he heard, it was the leech lord's wolves guarding it. But now it could be lions or Beric or anyone. Hold on, I have a mental image of an enormous leech leading wolves. On a leash? Ooh, a leech leash. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Like, I just see Plankton from SpongeBob. Oh my god, Plankton! What an icon. <sighs> Brienne says, or it could be no one. No one's an option, too. And the cook's like, well, that's cute. And says, you know what? You're better off just leaving as soon as possible. Stay off the roads. Shelter under trees in the night. Maybe you'll survive. Okay, this is so stupid, but I didn't notice it until I read it again. Mm hmm. It could be Lyons, or Lord Beric, or anyone. And Brienne goes, or no one. Mm -hmm. Well, guess who's down the road? Arya and Jacken. Hmm. No one I know. Good one, George. Yeah, really clever. That's all. I had to bring some of the cheese out, because I was like, ah, ah, he had to have thought of mm, this. The cheese from Illyrio Mopatis. <laughs> Brienne says that they're going to need horses, and Jamie's like, well, I remember seeing some on our way in. Turns out the Not an Innkeep has three more horses that are definitely not for sale, and Jamie demands to see them. Honestly, though, Jamie's POV does constantly stress that he's not an innkeep. This is, like, not just us. You know, like, his chapters are written in the way that, like, Tyrion, his voice and humor, like, very much comes through. But I, I do think, you know, the, the whole thing about how it's an innkeep, but not an innkeep, like, that's kind of what's going on with a lot of the characters in Jamie's story, right? Like, you've got a Kingsguard who's... In many ways, like, not really a Kingsguard, right? You got Brienne, who's yeah. a knight, 
but not a knight. Then you have Cleos, who is a knight, but not really no, a knight you're at gonna all. You're going to say a Lannister, but not a Lannister. A Frey, but not a Frey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, alive, but not, not alive. Coming. <sighs> well, they get the horses out. Jamie's ready to look them over. And the three horses are as follows. A lumbering brown plow horse, an ancient white gelding, blind in one eye, a knight's palfrey, dappled gray and spirited. So each one of these horses actually is very representative of this trio, Brienne, lumbering, strong plow horse. The gelding, blind in one eye, white, representing Jamie in his Kingsguard outfit and the injury to come, possibly, with his hand. Losing an eye, losing a hand. And, of course, the palfrey for Cleos and his fake, woke-ass chivalry that he obviously has no clue about. Fuck you, Cleos. You're the worst. Cleos, the Kingsguard could never hurt children. <laughs> it's like, they do it all the time. All of the time. Everywhere indoors. Oh my god. Ugh. Okay, anyways. Um, first of all, I like how you've made all of the horses match the people. This is important to me. It's important Does this to make the me listeners. a furry? Um, no. Hmm. Um, and also, it, it feels like you made the horses their demons, right? Uh, but also, it feels like a throwback. You know, three horses... The very first time you and I like recorded together the story of Sir Dunk, the Hedge Knight. There were three horses: Sweetfoot, Chestnut, Thunder. Bless them, never forget. Hey, love them. Yeah, we actually love those horses so much that we ended up naming one of our Patreon tiers after all three of those. Yes. So Jamie doesn't recognize the colors of the blanket on this horse, but we do. And there's really only one other house it could be, which would be House Daunt, which is nowhere near here. Uh, but there is a house that's very close by here right now, which is House Bolton. Kind of interesting Jamie doesn't think about this. Some foreshadowing for Harrenhal right here, in my opinion. And it's very obviously called out. George is really trying to build this up and play with us about this hand trade that's about to happen for Harrenhal. It's almost bolded when George says it used to be pink and black. The Brainy crew is heading right into what they think is wolf territory, but it turns out Tywin has gone and covered every corner he actually can. He's playing the only way he has left since Jamie's been captured. Now we're seeing Catalan's chapters at the same time where Bolton's siding with the North, quote-unquote, but then Jamie and Brienne show up, and it turns out Bolton's not really siding with the North. It's kind of like a magic trick. He's hiding the answer under a moving cup that keeps moving until the cup finally falls and it's what makes that horrible gut twist of the red wedding really effective there's so much foreshadowing that's built up especially because these are i guess early chapters and especially with bruce bolton like we knew he was sketchy right and you actually start to see um his thought process in some of these chapters so i'm excited to kind of pick that out as we move along mm -hmm, mm -hmm. even when we get over to heron hall and he interacts with jamie uh, but for now, Jamie tells Brienne, all right, here's what you should pay the man. She's like, no, I'm going to tip well. She gives the man a gold dragon for each of the horses from the purse Lady Catelyn had given her. The man wants something more because he's like, I don't know. Gold dragons don't always pay for survival. And she's like, okay, you can have the skiff too. And Jamie's like, you're being robbed blind. And she's like, no, I'm going to ignore you. She asks the cook for provisions as well, whatever he can spare. I kind of wonder if this, like, she's doing this not just out of, like, generosity in general, but as you were talking about earlier, she notices, like, 
Wow, they just gave us like the last of their meat. Yes, absolutely. And we'll talk about that in a sec. For now, he offers, well, I guess we got tastier things than oat cakes. We also have beds for the evening. He's like, but that will cost silver. And Brienne's like, no, I forgot. I uh, left my stove on and I need to go now. (laughs) She says the moon will brightly guide us, but you can tell that she's like, no, this feels a little sketch. He keeps trying to haggle and push. He's like, okay, well, I'll make it a copper instead. And Jamie's like, no, I agree. We need to leave now. And he also says, I also need you to do something about these chains. So the cook's like, there's a smithy out back by the stable. Jamie tells Brienne, oh, there's far too much horse shit about here for my taste. I would hate to step in it. Hoping that she gets his subtle hint uh, as they head toward the smithy. Oh, they've got inside jokes now. (laughs) She breaks his ankle chains, but leaves his wrist chains on still. The cook helps them load up to leave, warning them of a burnt village six miles downriver where the road splits off and which route was the best to take into the woods. Jamie hops onto his one-eye gelding, Brienne gets her plow horse, and Cleos takes the nightly palfrey. So there's a, there's a way that Jamie phrases this that kind of reminds me of that Robert Frost poem briefly. He's like, I don't know, um, I've, we've got promises to keep, so we gotta go, and we've got a long trip. Reminds me of walking through the woods on a snowy evening, I believe is the name of the poem. Uh, but also, this whole discussion about the blind-eyed horse reminds me of Val going to fetch... Tormund, you know, which we covered a few chapters ago with John, and by a few chapters ago, I mean a few chapters into the future from when this was published. Uh, Val seemed to think, you know, this half-blind horse is perfectly good enough for my purposes going through, you know, the wilderness. She's like, I'm not blind. It's fine. Uh, Interestingly enough, she's also clothed all in white. He's not right now, true. but the image of Jamie is. Interesting, yeah. And Jamie's like, no. I want a better horse, but he's like, whatever. This is fine, I guess. It also makes me think of Barrick, mm. since he was just brought up a bit ago with the one-eye horse. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of one-eyed things mm. that happen in this story, right? Like, later on, we get a thousand eyes. Technically, not just one eye. A thousand eyes and one, but whatevs. Jamie advises the young boy at the inn, what if you instead learn to use a spear or a maul? He's like, that would be way better than a crossbow. Take my advice. And the boy stares at him distrustfully. And Jamie's like, all right, whatever. So much for friendly advice, I guess. I kind of feel like Jamie should realize they're lucky they got what they got. Like, nobody wants your friendly advice right now, (laughs) sir. Uh, And it is really interesting in how their differences in upbringing affected this whole entire scenario. Because Brienne wanted to pay this man for the services and the products that he gave them. And Jamie objects. Like, this is wartime. The small folk of the Riverlands have nothing. Those that have something get picked off one by one by soldiers of whoever the fuck is commanding them. Whether they're broken men, outlaws, men sick of getting no plunder for themselves. Uh, Jamie, Brienne, Cleos, they're all buying their last three horses after eating the last bit of horse that these people had left. Jamie's never had to obtain a new horse on his own. He's never had to worry about that. He's never had to worry about how he was going to escape imprisonment or battle like in this manner. Uh, he's always had daddy's gold or an ally to help him, right? And the crown, for example, to keep him safe, to keep him fed, to keep him mounted. And when you think about John entering the Night's Watch, it's kind of similar, right? Like when John gets told off by Donald Noy, like, hey, you don't know. You've had privileges these people haven't. 
Jamie's been trained at arms. He's never hungered. He's never thirsted except maybe for his sister. Yes, he's viewed wrongly by the world. His pride's tainted. His name's sullied. But he's always had his health and never had to worry about where the next meal came from. This not an innkeep might not see a customer for days. He might not see a single soldier for days. They may somehow luck out and have peace for a few weeks at this place, but when someone comes, now all this guy has is a shitty wooden skiff with tolly sails, so automatically he has a one-third risk of getting away from his corner of the Red Fork. And if the trip to this inn has been any indication of what's going on in the Riverlands, it's not likely he's just going to survive a couple weeks with a skiff, no meat, and this kid with a crossbow. Like, not likely. Yeah, I, I think that's like a really good point of what what's going on here and especially you know again comparing jamie and john's upbringing as they enter each of these orders and coming in as spoiled kids but for jamie he never had to completely unlearn that he wasn't he didn't get get a humbling moment in the same way that john did Mm -hmm. like imagine if Granted, Alistair Thorne would have, I guess, liked Jamie, but it, someone who treated Jamie right, like Alistair Thorne, like if all of the lessons that John got were just like, no, things are terrible and just keep your head down, because that's what Jamie got. He didn't have mentor yeah. figures in the same way. He had people he looked up to, and they all let him down. Yeah, at least Jor or Corin or Mance told John how the world worked, you know, or at least taught him. And Donald Noy, I mean, John had a obviously 800 dads yeah as we learned going through his point of view um but tywin wasn't even one dad to jamie yeah john had 800 dads and they told him how the world worked and they told him this is yes how the world works but here's what you can do to make the world a little better right jamie was told this is how the world works for us for us and we don't change it this is our job is to uphold the status quo why fuck with the wheel if the wheel keeps spinning? Yeah. So they move along the Red Fork's banks. Jamie's horse is drifting off to the side due to his eye here and there. He hadn't been on his own horse since Whispering Wood, when Rob's archers had killed his horse. They reach the burnt village finally and come to their crossroads. None of the paths look great to take, per se, but they choose a southern, straight, and stony path, the same road the cook warned them against. Brienne reveals she didn't trust this not an innkeep and thought he might be pushing them into a trap. At least they could rule out one problem this way. Jamie thinks this is clever. Yeah, he's like, oh, okay. So she picked up on my joke. We did, we got inside jokes. Uh, Something that I also wanted to call out to talk about Brienne again for a bit. Jamie notes Brienne's posture as she's horse riding, riding the horse. I don't know terminology. She hunches. Uh, But he notes that she also is still got short seating. She rides well. And I think this is noteworthy because in Jamie pointing this out, he gives us sort of a mini view into what is good riding. You know, he's a well-regarded fighter slash knight, like in terms of skill, not in terms of honor, obviously. Uh, So he, he knows, right? And the upper body affects horseback riding. Slouching can push like the pelvis or something into the horse, make them go faster than you want them to. It, it, it's not great for controlling the horse's movement in certain ways. Uh, so for Brienne to have that sort of control despite her posture, I think speaks to her skill. Since Jamie's like, oh yeah, she's, she's got this. But it's not even that. I think that 
you get some of the characterization right there that Brienne is slouching even though she would have received training on what is good writing, but that she still slouches mm -hmm. is part of her character. It, it's She does it because of her appearance. It's a habit that she's adopted in order to make herself seem smaller, maybe more womanly, uh, even though based on like Westerosi standards, because like height, we see it's valued in men, right? People like the Cleganes, um, even with Hodor, it's something that's noted often as a positive. It's valued in men, but for Brienne, it that height made her undesirable by Westerosi standards because then she rivals men. So she tries to shrink herself, and beyond that, it it also shows us that she's kind of shy. I understand that. Understand, oh, that's it, right. Brienne. I get you, girl. I am tall. Very Chloe's tall. A tall. It's unfortunate. It's a hard life. I get you, Brienne. And something you said really reminded me, Jamie's horse in this moment, how it's riding kind of to the side, riding off the road, um, kind of reminds me of Cal Drogo hmm. when he was riding on his horse and kind of drifting off, uh, unable to ride anymore. And then, get ready, buckle up. I'm about to slap you to the next area. Are you I'm ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. It reminds me of Jamie when he gets his hand cut off. Huh. Trying to stay conscious. Oh. Mm -hmm. Even when they're leaving Heron Hall and he's a horse. Um, it reminds me of that a little bit. So I don't know if maybe this horse is supposed to invoke that idea here in this moment, but it did remind me of that. The horses are their demons. Yeah, maybe. 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 <laughs> they stay <laughs> off the road. Till they can pass the tower house and other big buildings, and by the middle of the night, they are drooping in their saddles. They take shelter in a small oak and ash oh. grove by a stream, and they eat stale oat cakes and salt fish. Brienne will not let them light a fire because she doesn't want to give away their location, and then she takes first watch. The half moon sat overhead in a black felt sky, surrounded by stars. Off in the distance, some wolves were howling. Some wolves were howling. One of their horses wickered nervously. There was no other sound. The war has not touched this place, Jamie thought. He was glad to be here, glad to be alive, glad to be on his way back to Cersei. Because we had Ned's chapters before and Sansa's and both Game and Clash and even like a lot of Tyrion's chapters, right? We get their interactions with Cersei. So she's very much a like fully fleshed out and established character. For the reader, like they've had a lot of interactions with Cersei. She has her own emotions. She has her own motiva character motivations. We see it as early as the Game of Thrones. And then you end up with Jaime, who has some like really pivotal character moments, such as like literally the beginning of the story, this entire story. Uh, but at the same time, actually gets very little, I think, screen time. He's sort of kept in the background somewhat mysterious until we get his conversation with Catelyn. And because of that, through his POV, we end up getting Jamie as a character defined very much by his own relationship with Cersei, because Cersei's already an anchored character here. And it ends up with a lot of Jamie's character motivation, especially in these first few chapters of his POV. His motivation is just be with Cersei. That's the, his driving narrative force. And I think that the dispersal of that as his character motivation, uh, as his character develops, is part of why the audience so clearly feels that shift in his character. 
um, it's not necessarily redemption, but it, it it's something that is so pivotal, right? That the propelling narrative force changes for him and it ends up moving from like that external development or external force into an internal one as he tries to establish like his own legacy and find himself. Uh, Brienne, of course, is a big part of that, but... Yeah, I'm excited to see what his internal look will be when we get to the Winds of Winter. Um, What's changed 100%. You know, I think the Winds of Winter is going to be the big kicker to see where Jamie is and looking at him at this huge overarching look from a Storm of Swords Jamie, from a Game of Thrones Jamie, uh, from the very beginning till now. I'm excited. So while Cleos is snoring, Jamie is very awake. He asks Brienne of her family. She says that she is her father's only child. She begins to say his only son, but cuts herself off, and Jamie laughs at her. He tells her, you do make an odd daughter. You know, to backtrack, like, yeah. There's a story called the Roman de Salance uh, that I wonder if this has played a big influence on Brienne's character. It's the story of a family that raises their of of a noble family that raises their daughter as a son um because like the king outlawed women from inheriting and they're like mm, but what if Silentius is how the name ends up getting said because Silentius is performing as a man doesn't really realize till much later on that like oh I guess I'm a girl, but like doesn't really necessarily identify with that. There's a lot of interesting ways to discuss this from gender theory. Ends up being a really good night. Better than a lot of the other nights, right? And you actually get a shift in pronouns between like whether they're silencious, right? Or if they're going by silence uh, based on oh. it. Uh, based on like how they're performing in that moment or what role they're taking. So really interesting. We'll get more into that. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of... um those like sort of medieval stories that come up and get deconstructed in both Brienne and Jamie's storylines. Well, and funnily enough, there's obviously the super basic one. And tell me if you've heard this one before, but uh, you know, the girl decides to go leave home and portray herself as a soldier, hmm. uh, as a male soldier. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yes, um, you know, like... Yeah. I think they have one of those right in, in China. Have you heard I of think, it? I think so. I think so. I don't know if you'd be into it. Mulan? I I mean, like, I've heard of it. I've heard of it. Never. (laughs) It's my life. It's my entire life. I mean, I mean, not that. I mean, the love of this movie. This story. Uh, Okay. So we have this quote now from Jamie of what a wretched creature this one is. She reminded him of Tyrion in some queer way, though at first blush, two people could scarcely be more could scarcely be any more dissimilar. Perhaps it was that thought of his brother that made him say, I did not intend to give offense, Brienne. Forgive me. Uh, our friend Lo that we talk about all the time actually emailed us a while ago about Tyrion and how, mm. for Jamie, his masculinity is very much being able to perform things like fights and swords and different things and how Tyrion, uh, his masculinity, has been trying to establish himself in court and to live up to his father's expectations as much as he can um, and to try to prove himself as a Lannister of the Rock. So I thought that was interesting that he equated Brienne with Tyrion as two people that I guess are physically limited 
in what society allows them to do. Mm-hmm. And as this chapter is happening, let's take a look over in Kang's Landing. The battle has been won thanks to Tywin and the Tyrells, which uh, it's a debt that seems small at first, but the Tyrells really end up bringing more of this doom to the Lannister house. Tyrion and Tyrion I is actually asking for his birthright from Tywin. The Knights of the Kingsguard are forbidden to marry, to father children, and to hold land. You know that as well as I. The day Jaime put on that white cloak, he gave up his claim to Casterly Rock, but never once have you acknowledged it. It's past time. I want you to stand up before the realm and proclaim that I am your son and your lawful heir. And then, of course, in a burst of parallels, in Tyrion II in A Storm of Swords, the next claimant to be made to the Kingsguard is Loras Tyrell. Tyrion asks Loras when he talks to him, why would anyone choose to join the Kingsguard at 17? Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight took his vows at 17, Sir Loras said, and your brother Jaime was younger still. Yeah. So that was our King's Landing check-in. <laughs> Fascinating. You know, Loras Tyrell being like, yeah, these are my heroes? Things went great for them, right? Uh, oh. Flash over to Jamie in a storm of swords. Oh, teenagers. Uh, and I think that that's a good thing to call out, especially, you know, as you're seeing that connection between Jamie and Tyrion and how it plays into Brienne. And, and you can tell that it really touches him because he said he addressed her as Brienne in his apology. Yeah. Yes, and uh, he does it specifically, Yeah, which shows that he has the capacity, the capacity to be nice. It's in there. Yeah, and Brienne's like, okay, Slayer. Uh, Yeah, she tells the Kingslayer his crimes are past forgiving, and he's like, why do do you hate me? Like, why does this chick hate me so much? I've done nothing to hurt her personally, but... Of course, it comes back to Ares, and that's why she hates him, and they jibe back and forth, refusing to call each other by their actual names until she asks him, why did you take the oath if you were just going to betray it? Um, there's so much name play here, with him refusing to call her Brienne and her refusing to call him Jamie, and I know that a huge layer of that that we really get to soak off of us in the bathhouses is that Jamie has never let anyone be that close to that side of him. Like, why would he let anyone know the man beneath the Kingslayer when that's all that they think he is? What's the point? And he spent so much time in this shell of a person. And another reason we came really close to putting Jamie next to Theon was this focus of identity. In a way, Theon too was a Kingslayer, right? With Bran being King Rob's heir. And what justifies a kill? Theon's murder of the Miller's boys is just as awful, if not worse, than killing the actual princes of Winterfell. And it's bad for other people in the North, right? Morale, tricked to let the Boltons in. Jaime's murder of King Aerys was good for the people, despite murder being bad, technically, and also, you know, preventing the city from blowing up. Theon ends up having a classic redemption arc, showing right now the chance to do better, to repent his sins, uh, saving Jane, even though she's no one. Uh, suffering at the hands of the Boltons. Obviously, I wouldn't want that to happen to anyone to redeem their character, but he's definitely suffered, right? He's on a different path now. But how can Jamie redeem what wasn't really a bad act? It was more of just a PR nightmare. For me, in these first few chapters, obviously, we're not in love with Jamie from these first few chapters. Like, he's a smarmy git. Mm-hmm. He gets off on having other people do his work for him. 
his need to protect himself emotionally is like every guy I've ever dated, right? Like you're just sitting there and you're like, come on, Jamie, come on. We're so close. You can get intimate with us, Jamie. Uh, yes, the world's laughed at him and he's isolated himself in a toxic relationship that psychologically fucked him up to no end of time. But he is being really unchivalrous here, which is a great way to look at the growth we see from him when he punches Red Ronnet in the face, right? <laughs> like, even though it's technically done in the Lannister Baratheon name, it's still far more chivalrous than any of the times he's acted in these first two chapters. Yeah, and, and I don't know that that's what Jamie's trying to redeem himself from, right? Like, we find out, oh, turns out that wasn't bad. It, it's the our first... I mean, like, from the get-go, our first impression of him is, like, he throws children off buildings to improve their health, right? Right. It's that kind of behavior. It's the kind of behavior where, you know, you just sleep with your sister a lot and destabilize the whole realm. I'm just gonna throw kids out of windows. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's the behavior. But he spends so much time thinking that, oh, I'm reviled for this awful behavior, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, Janie. It's the other stuff, dude. Yeah. And it's unlike John, right? He ends up being reviled for all the things that he's done thus far to break his oaths. Yet he's like, yeah, that sucks. I'm going to just keep trying to do what I think is right, though. Rather, you know, he, like Jamie, admits to it. He's like, yeah, I did all that. I slept with her. Um, yes, I killed Corrin Halfhand. That did happen. Yep. Um, what I'm saying is if they had a better PR team. Yeah would have gone way differently but the pr narrative that the lannisters have chosen was not like what if we made ourselves more likable or explain things they were just like we will scare them we will scare them into submission <laughs> yeah the lannister pr team would just like kill you in an alley yeah they're like this is this is good right this is what <laughs> you don't want <laughs> well, uh, jamie tells brienne that he was a boy when it all happened, she's like, I don't like that answer. And he's like, well, the real answer is even worse. I joined the King's Guard for love because of course, <laughs> of course. That's how that works. Uh, so Tywin had summoned Cersei to court. He's like, I'm going to make a match for you. And he re- obviously hoped it would be Rhaegar. Somehow, somehow. He's like, maybe Elia will die, right? I'm still pursuing the same dream from back then. Or maybe like the series is going to grow older. And Jamie had been squiring for Lord Sumner Craighall for four years. He'd fought in the King's Gar the Kingswood God damn it. He fought against the Kingswood Brotherhood and then when he visited home, Cersei was like, Guess what? Dad's trying to marry you to Liza Tully. Uh, and he's like, But I have a solution. I have a solution for how we're gonna be together. You're gonna join the king's guard and then you're gonna hang out with me in the capital while i cuck my husband yeah all, and she's like and all you can do all this for the low price of casterly rock more or less literally how she sells it to him every time he went to sleep she woke him again Ew. by morning casterly rock seemed a small price to pay to be near her always he gave his consent and cersei promised to do the rest a moon's turn later, a royal raven arrived at Casterly Rock to inform him he'd been chosen for the king's guard. He was commanded to present himself to the king during the great tourney at Harrenhal to say his vows and don his cloak. 
But that's the only thing that went to plan, because while his dad couldn't openly object, he resigned immediately from his hand job, taking Cersei home to Casterly Rock with him. Womp, womp, womp. The saddest hand job. And Jamie's like, great, now I'm just here? Alone? Yep, this is you. And celibate? Even though I was planning on breaking that? What? (laughs) Yeah, and so I, I... Many people have said this before, right? That there's absolutely shades of the legend of Lancelot, Sir Lancelot, and Guinevere here between Jaime and Cersei, right? You've got also, like, some of that knight-errant story going on here. The knight-errant, right, does a lot of wandering around, trying to, like, fulfill chivalric deeds or trying to be heroic. And Jaime's story is, I think, very much a... A subversion of that. He becomes a knight errant. You know, he he was landed, right? He had a place. He was going to inherit Casterly Rock. He ends up becoming a wandering knight and not having a place because he's like, but what if I gave it all up for love? Uh, And then it's like, honey, what if I told you your love was fucked up? (laughs) Yeah, it was. And like, it's an even more fucked up version, right, of the story of Lancelot. There's a lot of different ways that it, this legend has manifested throughout like the centuries. Um, one of them, one of the later versions in the 1400s was from Thomas Mallory. He wrote a Lancelot that is, um, and Guinevere that is much more detailed. It's very much inspired by his own experiences, though, with the War of the Roses. And I thought that was noteworthy because George R. R. Martin was inspired by the War of the Roses. He thought that he was originally going to write like a historical fiction about the War of the Roses. And he's like, but my friend convinced me to add dragons. So maybe I'll just do that instead. And the love of... So glad he did. Yeah. The love affair of Lancelot and Guinevere, of course, led to the split and the destruction of an entire kingdom. And like, you know, here here we are. A Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> Jamie, Cersei. Three... Bastard children born of incest. A war that we see all around us. Lions or wolves or fish. Oh my. <laughs> so. Jamie, during all this time, had been alone in the capital, stuck guarding Ares, watching different hands of the king try and fail to fill Tywin's shoes. He remembers the heraldry better than the men. Horn of Plenty, <laughs> which is Merryweather. Dancing Griffins. John Connington, the Mace and Dagger, Chelstead, and last but certainly least, Lord Rosser the Alchemist. Certainly least. Certainly least. A lot of this talk reminds me just of the Lannister crime family. Uh, Porkman and Overrun not a cast. Shout out to them. Congrats on your hundredth episode, you guys. One millionth Uh, download. And one million downloads. I know, right? They're famous now. Do you think they'll sign my autograph? <laughs> ah. Wait, that didn't make sense. Anyways, poor Quentin over at Nauticast has absolutely always referred to the Lannister family as a crime family or a big ma- boss mafia family. They really are. Uh, and Cersei was like, Cersei was the prettiest single girl left after the rebellion. And everyone stayed away. Why do you think that was? Right? Like, why do you think Cersei was not? Like, yes, he was saving her, hopefully, for Rhaegar, a really good match, but, like, also people just were like, no. 
that's okay. We know better because Lord kissed the ring Lannister was a scary bitch. <laughs> and like Jamie in this chapter, he's recanting what going to the White Cloaks was like. And it reminds me of this scene in Goodfellas where Henry Hill, played by Ray Liotta, uh, he goes off. Henry Hill was an American mob, American mobster who did it all. He was arrested on narcotics charges, ended up an FBI informant, so he got out by testifying about his colleagues. He got 50 of them convicted, and he ended up dying of a heart attack. Not badassery, but it's spruced up for the movie. Uh, and the couple parts of the passage in the movie that really remind me of this. The hardest thing for me was leaving the life. I still loved the life, and we were treated like movie stars with muscle. We had it all, just for the asking. Our wives, mothers, kids, everybody rode along. I had paper bags filled with jewelry stashed in the kitchen. I had a sugar bowl full of coke next to the bed. Anything I wanted was a phone call away. Free cars, the keys to a dozen hideout flats all over the city. I'd bet twenty, thirty grand over a weekend and I'd either blow the winnings in a week or go to the sharks to pay back the bookies. Didn't matter. Didn't mean anything. When I was broke, I'd go out and rob some more. We ran everything. We paid off cops. We paid off lawyers. We paid off judges. Everybody had their hands out. Everything was for the taking, and now it's all over. That's the hardest part. Today, everything is different. There's no action. I have to wait around like everyone else. Can't even get decent food. Right after I got here, I ordered spaghetti with marinara, and I got egg noodles and ketchup. I'm an average nobody. I get to live the rest of my life like a schnook. Um, That's like the difference between the king's guard before like what jamie thought he was walking into like a big old bowl of cocaine and like everything in the world and then like like as soon as they had him kneel on that grass they were like all right kid well that's it you're locked up now yeah congratulations enjoy the egg noodles and ketchup signed up for a life of celibacy you schnook <laughs> you thought you were gonna get to bang your twin sister the whole time instead of telling brienne all this He's just like, you're not old enough to remember Ares. And Brienne's like, okay, Boomer. Uh, he was still king, crowned, anointed, and his duty was to protect him. Uh, you swore to. And Jamie turns his back around on Brienne. And he's like, aren't you a Kingslayer too? He's like, what about Renly? And Brienne's like... Shocked Pikachu face. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Actually, oh my god, I forgot. That's like my favorite beam ever. It's so versatile. She's like... I never harmed Renly. There was a shadow and cold air and then blood, as though this would be very believable for most people the next time around for some reason. And then Jamie's like, one Kingslayer to another. Did the Starks pay you to slit his throat or was it Stannis? Had Renly spurned you? Was that the way of it? Or perhaps your moon's blood was on you? Never give a wench a sword when she's bleeding. Ah, I see Westeros has that colloquialism in common. Interesting. Yeah. Jamie thinks Brienne means to hit him in that moment, and if she didn't, I would have. Uh, <laughs> and he decides he'll use the opportunity to take her dagger in his head. But then neither of these things happen. Interesting. She tells him it's a rare and precious gift to be a knight, especially one of the Kingsguard, and that he shit upon it. Yeah, which finally, you know, it comes out what the whole thing is about, right? Why, why she feels this way. But Jamie doesn't get it. He's like, uh, I earned my knighthood. Okay. Um, he writes, recites his accomplishments with the Brotherhood and Arthur Dane and tells her, you know, you should be mad at the gods for not giving you a cock. It's not me. It's not my fault. First off, the gods aren't real, Jamie. Second off, 
These are such learned behaviors, like Eliana said earlier, being projected onto Brienne, just like Cersei did to Sansa about their gender. When we were little, Jamie and I were so much alike that even our Lord Father could not tell us apart. Sometimes as a lark, we would dress in each other's clothes and spend a whole day each as the other. Yet even so, when Jamie was given his first sword, there was none for me. What do I get? I remember asking. We were so much alike, I could never understand why they treated us so differently. Jamie learned to fight with sword and lance and mace while I was taught to sing and smile and please. <sighs> yeah, uh, I mean... It's very obvious where these projections come from. You spend your life in love with one person, Cersei, and this is how it kind of comes out. Yeah, he just thinks that every woman's kind of like her. Yeah. But Brienne has nothing to say to this. She's not like, that's not necessarily what I wanted. She's just like, I just wanted to be allowed to be a knight, no matter what my sex or gender was. Uh, she doesn't say this aloud because I don't know if Jamie would even get it at this point. Jamie's still kind of like in meathead jack mode and so he just curls up in his cloak and he's like i'm gonna just try to dream of cersei uh that doesn't go well either you know all the things when when he tries to do this right it doesn't go well he ends up haunted by dreams of Ares targaryen instead if you squint i mean <laughs> i mean the hair color maybe you know if in in the right lighting uh, in this light maybe she could be a knight uh Ares is pacing the throne room in this dream picking scabs from his arms where he cut himself open on the throne, Jamie slips into the room and he remembers it just like it was in this dream. He's wearing his golden armor and not his white. Ares sees blood on Jamie's blade and demands to know if it's Tywin's blood and says, I want him dead, the traitor. I want his head. You'll bring me his head or you'll burn with all the rest. All the traitors. Rossart says they're inside the walls. He's gone to make them a warm welcome. Whose blood? Whose? And that's when Jamie answers and says, Rossarts. <sighs> Such like a baller move. Yeah. Especially because the passage goes, those purple eyes grew huge then and the royal mouth drooped open in shock. Shock Pikachu he face. Lost control of his bowels, turned and ran for the Iron Throne. <sighs> and then I love that, of course, mm -hmm. the end of the passage is, a single slash across his throat was all it took to end it. So easy. He remembered thinking, a king should die harder than this. Yes. Ugh. It's a good line. It's not discussed. It's not discussed often. Yeah. A king should. I mean, think about Robert's death. Yeah. That was a gruesome, prolonged death. Now, if you're Cersei, maybe not. But Cersei's over there like, could have happened weeks ago. I've just been trying. <laughs> yeah. Cersei was like, that was so hard. <laughs> Took a long time. Ugh. <laughs> uh. I, I want to focus, there's a line that follows uh, this thought process of Jamie's. Rosert at least had tried to make a fight of it, though if truth be told, he fought like an alchemist. Queer that they never asked who killed Rosart, but of course he was no one, lowborn, hand for a fortnight, just another mad fancy of the mad king. Frankly, I, I think Jamie's right in calling this out. You know, like for a lot of the story we see, as you've been pointing out, he, he was raised like a Lannister. I mean, all of them were, right? They don't give a shit about lowborn people. Even Tyrion doesn't. And coming back again to how it could have been with Theon and the Miller's boys, you know, you discuss in depth. Uh, and we we both did in the Theon chapters that he's struggling to understand that, you know, 
part of what you did bad was killing the Miller's boys. He's just like, I didn't kill Bran and Rick and I'm innocent. It's like, yes, but what about those kids? Uh, regardless of their station, they mattered. And I think that there's a kind of irony here in that it's Jamie who's the one who's noting it with Rosart. Like, maybe it comes back to the vows that he's just, like, thrown away in that moment when he's like, fuck it. Because, like, he notices Rosart because, I mean, a good king should. A, a good knight should. And he's not a good knight because he just killed him. Whatever. Uh, but he's right that no one ever really thinks about him. Because he is lowborn, like we have Ned's POV, Ned never thinks about Rosart at all. Like it, he's not mentioned at all in a Game of Thrones. His first mention is in a Clash of Kings when you know the not the Tyrion's talking to the alchemists, but it's Jamie who's the one who actually like gives him space in the narrative and remembers him. And I I know that the obvious meta answer is because George R. R. Martin gardened Rosart later on, but if we're taking yeah. just the text in this moment. Well, and it's an, also it's an interesting thought because Ned in the moment isn't thinking about any of that. I mean, why Ned would be most upset about Ares is he doesn't probably know all the details of what went on with Rhaegar and Ares, right? Like, he doesn't know Ares was going to be the heir and something special was going to happen that he was going to take over from the dad. Or He doesn't know all that. He just doesn't. There's no way Lyanna had enough time in her dying breath to give Ned all the answers, right? Like, I think we can all agree that. In that moment, Ned's pretty emotionally fucked up Yeah, when he shows up at that King's Landing. You know, he's like, oh, the Targaryens are all dead. All the tiny Targaryen children, super tiny children, dashed against a wall, broken against a wall. Yeah. Huh. And Jamie doesn't know that all of that has happened yet. Because he's like, I don't know, maybe baby Aegon could be king. That could happen. Yeah. Miscommunication. Lots of miscommunication. A lot of non-communication at all, especially within the Lannister family, my god. As you said, like Ned doesn't know that Jamie, you know, has just spoken with his father's knights, Ellie's Westerling and Lord Craycall, and he saw in their eyes like that they were gonna blame him, and he was just like, I don't know, I don't give a shit who becomes king. I didn't do this for any of that. He's like, because they were like, Are you gonna crown your dad, Robert? Another Targaryen. He's like, I don't know, I just wanna sit down. I wanna take a seat. Because it's easy to think so. Tywin's a dick. It's easy yeah. to think that Jamie is just like his dad. Uh, but no one ever thought to fucking know what Jamie was like. They just assumed that he was just like Tywin. Yeah, he, like Tyrion, has been in many ways living under the shadow of Tywin. Just it, It's affected them in different ways because he was a bad father. Yeah, he was a non-father. Absolutely. I mean, he was like opposite. Very abusive. Not a father. Yeah. Not a dad. Not a dad. Uh, not a dad, actually, though. I, I did want to call out quickly that the Lord Craycall that finds Jamie here is Lord Roland Craycall, not Sumner, for whom Jamie squired. So I, it is kind of noteworthy and maybe a little emotional that this is who found him and blamed him with his eyes because he squared for yeah, that house. A house he grew up in. Yeah. I mean, this is where he grew up. They're like, ex who, who is this? They're like, hmm, not my family. And when you think about how Ned and Robert grew up, John Aaron was willing to go to a war for him, but. The Craig Halls walk in and judge him. Yeah. Jamie is basically directing these guys in the throne room in this dream to take captives and spare those who yield. And that is when Craig Hall asked, you know, who who should be the new king? And this is a huge moment, right? Like, this is where a lot of people talk about Kristen Cole, mm. right? When it comes to the Dance of the Dragons. And 
I think Jamie was more kingmaker in this moment, right? Like, yeah. he could have been the kingmaker. He could have been Kristen Cole in this moment. But instead, uh, he just flipped him off and said, proclaim whoever the fuck you want. He's trying to remove himself from the game. He stopped playing the game, stopped being a Kingsguard, and he's like, I don't know, I don't give a shit. All he wanted was just a chance to understand who he was. And he was never going to get that as the son of Tywin Lannister, and he doesn't get to get that as a Knight of the Kingsguard either. Yeah, and he doesn't get to get that as Kingslayer, right? He did this one thing, and it's defined him his entire life. He never got to find out who he was, he just found out who everyone else thought he was. Like, for example, who Eddard Stark thought he was. Jamie's dream ends, uh, and I think it's I think it's just really pretty imagery. It ends with, You had no right to judge me either, Stark. In his dreams, the dead came burning, gowned in swirling green flames. Jamie danced around them with a golden sword, but for every one he struck down, two more arose to take his place. Hmm. That sounds interesting. That feels very significant, and while it reminds me a little bit of Sack at King's Landing-esque with the whole swirling green flames, sure. uh, I think it's very much so supposed to remind us of the North, maybe, yeah. with the others? somehow. The Whites? The Whites with the green flames? Is this- is this- Every one he struck down, two more arose to take his place. Is this- I, I, Butterfly? A Song of Ice and Fire? I don't know. I just don't know. Well, neither does JB. He never gets to think about it because Brienne wakes him with a boot to his ribs. She's like, we gotta eat. Now we gotta go. On to the next adventure. Aww, <laughs> uh, here it goes. <laughs> Settle down. <laughs> Settle down there, Kel. <laughs> Kellyana. Kellyana and Keenanly. I don't know. We'll work, we'll work on, on it. it. We'll workshop it. We'll workshop it. this. Jamie wearing the gold armor purposefully and like specifically him remembering it I think that's an interesting thought that pops up because he's using it to justify his behavior in a way. Mm. I know we talked a lot about defense mechanisms in Sansa chapters and Theon chapters. I wrote about it over at my world-famous blog, liesinarborgold.com. But through this chapter and through Jamie's thoughts, we've kind of learned Jamie has deep-seated trauma from King's Landing. Gasp. Read all about it. He has deep-seated trauma from Casterly Rock. He has several internal defense mechanisms he's developed in order to sustain his emotional psyche without compromising the little progress he's made in protecting himself along the way. Uh, And instead of opening up and becoming intimate with someone else or vulnerable, which he is afraid to do because he's only ever been like that with Cersei, who constantly chides him and is toxic and cruel and shuts him down, um, much like his parent Tywin has been with him his whole life Mm -hmm. probably as well. Yes, he's the golden son, but Tywin's not probably happy about the whole Kingsguard thing still. Uh, I think it's very obvious that Jamie was using the golden armor to say, like, it wasn't all bad. At least I didn't wear the whole entire costume, you guys. I think that's significant because, like, Jamie is one of, I think, the strongest ways that A Song of Ice and Fire deconstructs some of these larger tropes that George is writing against, especially like, things like the chivalric romance or is exploring those in different ways. And I think that the golden armor plays into that. Like, so much of A Song of Ice and Fire has this running idea of the stories that we tell ourselves end up defining our choices. And the stories and the heroes that we look up to are who we try to pattern, who we want to be. 
and turns out a lot of those stories are perverted in the retellings of those and over the years you brought up Sansa and her trauma and like Sansa's story dealt with that heavily especially as she clings to those as a way to like continue keeping her values through what she goes through uh as Cersei trying to disillusion her we see Jaime trying to do that with Brienne in these chapters it's something we see in both Bran and Jon's chapters. People keep giving them like alternate versions of songs and legends. Or like, you know, that's not how the story goes, right? Or like, haven't you heard of Bale the Bard? Or and you know, learning that the people who are positioned as monsters aren't that—they're just people. And for a lot of the story, sometimes it's also learning that people are more monstrous than they they thought they could be. So for Jamie, I think it's interesting that he's so caught up on people being like, how come they got the armor wrong, right? That it was gold and not white because what? it's because in the retelling of the story and the dramatization that everyone's been saying around the kingdom, white makes it that much more dramatic. It highlights the betrayal of his oaths. Yeah. And as you were saying, you know, the gold is important for him it's jamie finally deciding for one to take his destiny into his own hands like as you said he's like i didn't wear it at least and he doesn't partially because in that moment the gold shows that he's jamie he's not necessarily a lannister in that red uh he's not a king's guard even though he's like still wearing the cloak he's decided in that moment i'm not going to be a king's guard and just as the realm forgets the detail of his armor you know, Jamie's dream and where it starts, it actually positions Ares as weak and pitiful and Jamie as the aggressor. It glides completely past the real reason why Jamie was in that throne room with the candlestick in the first <laughs> place. You know, why he's wearing the gold armor. All of that never gets told in the larger narrative about Jamie the Kingslayer. But, you know, we're going to get to that in a later chapter. I think something that's really poignant especially in light of what the bad show did with its finale <coughs> um, with john killing danny uh, obviously that's a very if it's if it's legit which i don't know but if john is the death of danny in one way or another um the way that jamie probably put on his armor knowing what he had to go down to that throw room and do like he put on his gold armor that day knowing that he was going to walk with the heavy weight at his feet, at his shoulders, saying, this is what you're going downstairs to do right now. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important to think about. Like, he had to plan for it, and he had to have tossed and turned about it. He thought about just letting it be, but he couldn't do that. Yeah, and he had to have intentionally done that because, I mean, his job is to be an armor, and for him to have chosen that one of all days and not the King's Guard. Even Ned, uh, who has an impeccable sense of style, honestly, you don't really think about it until you read all of his chapters only in a row. But <laughs> uh, Ned very carefully chooses what he wears and when he wears it. And I think for, especially for men, interestingly enough, in Westerosi society, what you wear does denote absolutely tone. It denotes, uh, is this a, a hostile meeting? Is this a meeting of just business? What is this meeting? And yeah. you have to know what to wear. And for Kingsguard, I think even more so. For Kingsguard, for, I mean, for the Night's Watch, right? For them, John thinks often about, like, wearing the black and all the other people. And, like, Mance Raider, 
chooses who he wants to be because he's like, uh, no, I don't want to wear black all the time. I want to wear this incredibly meaningful red and black cape. And and the choosing of the clothes can be that motivation and absolutely symbolizes that identity. And that's why we have our fashion hour segments. And today it was <laughs> Jamie and his golden armor. Well, we have lots to come next week to discuss as far as Jamie, Brienne, even Cleos. God rest his soul. <laughs> Wait, is that a spoiler? Um, <laughs> this is a reread podcast? This is a reread, so I could talk about Cleos being dead because it fucking slaps. It slaps. But next week, fangirl Jean is going to be here to help us make it slap, and we are so pumped for that. Yes, I'm excited. I'm excited to have her on for this chapter. I was like, if there's anyone that I want on to discuss this. Oh my god, she's just gonna have the best the best uh, analysis of the entire sword fight. One of the top three sexiest scenes in all of Song of Ice and Fire, I'm gonna be real. What's your other two? Um, Lady Rohan and Dunk. I don't know if that okay. counts. I guess that's not technically a Song of Ice and Fire. So maybe that throws off my... Um, I haven't thought about the other one. <laughs> I just Three oh. just sounded like a good number. You know, people say top three things, right? Okay. Well, they never say bottom three. God. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening this week, you guys. This has been yet another super fruitful discussion about Jamie. I worry for the rest of the chapter. Why? Oh, because they're also in depth. Long. There's so much depth, and I love them, but wow, we are not going to get a single twofer done, are we? I don't think so. Well, it's a good place to be stuck with friends. Next week, we'll be stuck with fangirl Jean. And we have, uh, I think, at least one or two other guests happening during Jamie. So keep an ear open for that. Yes. And of course, don't just keep an ear open. Subscribe to us on social media. You can find us at Girls Gone Canon on Twitter, C-A-N-O-N. Or again, shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Especially shoot us an email if you would like to win a free ticket to Ice and Fire Con uh, at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Remember, make your subject line favorite pov put your favorite pov tell us a little bit about why it's your favorite and illyrio mopatis may or may not patronize your trip to ice and fire con not the entire trip only the ticket caveat lodgings transportation food etc is not included in this sweepstakes prize and don't forget to subscribe to us over at a platform where you listen to podcasts as well while you're at it we are on podbean where we're hosted Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, Acast, you name it, we're there. Look us up on the internet. Of course, we do have our Patreon, where uh, all subscribers, $5 and up, get special episodes. This month, the special episode will be about His Dark Materials. It will be covering the prequel-sequel series, The Books of Dust. (laughs) Uh, especially the secret commonwealth. Chloe, I, I guess I'm just going to talk about Chloe. Chloe will be joined by special guest Faye of Her Dark Materials, and I am abandoning all of you. <gasps> you said it out loud it. Yes, it's true. Oh my god. Yes, you are, but you'll be back. You can't stay away Allegedly. from us for long. So. Allegedly. <laughs> uh, maybe Faye will start being your other host, you guys, is what could, I'm trying to say. Be. You need a new mom? We'll get a new mom. Um, we are so excited to have fangirl Jean join us for Jamie 3 next week, and we will talk to you next week. I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. 
And I've been another one of your hosts, Eliana. For now. For now. (laughs) Bye, guys. Goodbye. Is it my fault that mom's leaving?